Would you open your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of Mark? We'll be reading um, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, I would encourage you to grab a Bible from in front of you. You can find Mark chapter 2 on page 837. Let's continue to worship this morning as we hear the word of our God. Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And when he, Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together, so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof from above him. When they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. So that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we do desire to draw near to you this morning, and we bless your name. You are the God who forgives our iniquity and heals our diseases. You are the God who crowns us with steadfast love and mercy. You are the God who satisfies us with good. You have not held our sins against us, but you have forgiven us. As far as the east is from the west, so far do you, O God, remove our transgressions from us. We come to you this morning with glad hearts because of Jesus Christ. Because he is the man with authority to forgive sins on earth. Father, we ask this morning that you would do two specific works in our hearts. Father, would you make us needy for Christ this morning? Would you show us our great need that we might yearn for Jesus Secondly, we ask that you would work faith in our hearts so that we would come to Jesus and that we would grab hold of him, that we would know him, that we would know his character, that we would have direct communion with this Savior. Father, would you do this and would you work this through your word this morning? We need your help. We pray this in your son's name. 
Amen. Reading the Gospel of Mark is much like going to the optometrist, the, the eye doctor. And if you have bad eyesight like me, you know the drill. Once a year, you're supposed to make your way to the eye doctor. And when you go to the eye doctor, you sit down in the chair, and you take your glasses off, and the eye doctor asks you to read the eye chart in front of you. And if you're like me, without my glasses, I can't see very well, and I can make my way down to the third or fourth line, and after that, everything else is blurry and incomprehensible. And then begins the work. The doctor brings up a massive pair of adjustable glasses, puts them in front of you, they're called a, a foropter, and slowly but surely, the doctor works to correct your blurry vision. The eye doctor says A or B, B or C, B or D, and after about 10 minutes of this and hundreds of questions and choices you have to make, you can finally make your way down to the bottom of the eye chart. If the eye doctor is good at what he or she does, you gain clarity, you gain vision, you can see. And the same thing happens in the Gospel of Mark. As we begin reading this gospel, we can easily make out the E on the I chart. This is a story about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and the kingdom that he bears. Jesus comes and preaches in chapter 1, verse 15. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So this is good. We can make out the biggest letter on the I chart. We're not legally blind, and we can begin to make sense of what the story is all about. But just seeing the big E on the I chart is not enough for us. We need more clarity to find out exactly what do these things mean. What does it mean for Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of God? What does it mean for the kingdom of God to be at hand and even present and being mediated through the person and work of Jesus? So we need to see more than the big E on the I chart. We need to move down the chart and see the smaller letters. And Mark, through this story, works as a faithful and skilled eye doctor. He dedicates himself to the, the task of making Jesus clear and plain to us. So Mark brings up the adjustable glasses to our eyes, and through the story, saying after saying, vision after vision, begins to clar clarify our sight so that we can make sense of this Jesus and his kingdom. And as we move through this story, Jesus and his kingdom come into sharper and sharper focus. In the preaching of John, we, we learn that Jesus is the one to whom all the prophets look forward and point. John confesses, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Then in the Jordan River, we hear this booming voice from heaven. You are my beloved son, with, with you I am well pleased. And then in the wilderness, Jesus proves his faithfulness. He is the obedient son. And here we learn in the wilderness that Jesus is the promised offspring of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. He has come and he will crush the head of the serpent through his obedience. As we progress through chapter 1, the many miracles that Jesus performs reveals who he is. He is the great of Israel. He has come to deal with their maladies. And Jesus is undoing the effects of Israel's covenant on faithfulness. The curses of Deuteronomy have come upon these people because of their sin. And Jesus is systematically reversing the covenant curses of God. And we hear Jesus is preaching about the saving reign of God. 
And as we hear his preaching, we realize that his preaching, his words carry unique significance. Mark narrates in chapter 1, Jesus taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. And even more than this, in chapter 1, we see the tangible results of the kingdom of God in Jesus' ministry. The sick are healed, demons are cast out, the leper is even cleansed. With all of this before us, with Jesus' words and sayings in our ears, with his deeds before us, our eyes, we're led to cry out with the crowds, what is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And this brings us to our text this morning, Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. In Mark's work as an optometrist, this story is integral for our clear understanding of who Jesus is and what this kingdom is all about. And while this story continues, Jesus' healing ministry that we saw in chapter 1, there are, are some noticeable changes that become evident in chapter 2. First, we're introduced to a new set of vocabulary terms. For the first time from Jesus' lips, we hear about this, the forgiveness of sins. And we're introduced to Jesus' identity that he uses for himself, the Son of Man. Second, we're introduced to the very conflict that will ultimately lead to Jesus' death. Here we see the plot line of Mark coming into focus. And here we can start to make sense of what's going to happen at the cross. We're going to hear about the claims that come against Jesus, even in this text. Jesus is a blasphemer. So this morning, as we open up God's word, we have two tasks before us. First, we need to understand this word about Jesus and this kingdom that he bears. So our plan is to walk through this text very slowly so that Mark can do his work as an optometrist, so that he can clarify our vision about Jesus and this kingdom. And second, we need to take this vision that Mark presents before us and then begin to apply it and push it upon our hearts. We need to do this work of application. So let's jump into the text this morning and work through it. Verses 1 and 2, Mark says, And when he, Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. And it's clear at this point in the story of Mark as we enter into chapter 2 that Jesus' ministry within the region of Galilee had struck a chord with the crowds. The words that Jesus said were powerful and authoritative. The works that he performed were unheard of. Who can cleanse a leper? And the mercy and love that Jesus extends again and again is alluring to the crowds and they draw near him. And through Mark, through Mark chapter 1, Jesus' fame and his popularity grows exponentially. Chapter 1, verse 28, Mark records, And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And Simon tells Jesus when he finds him hiding out in the wilderness, in chapter 1, verse 37, Everyone is looking for you. And after the cleansing of the leper, Jesus is continually bombarded by the crowds, whether he's in the wilderness or he's in town. Mark records, the leper went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. 
what makes this so astounding is that in Jesus' day, there were no TVs. There's no internet or Facebook or Twitter or radios or iPhones. This was all word of mouth. People were talking about what Jesus did and what Jesus said, and then people were flocking to him. At the end of verse 2, we hear this. Mark records, and he was preaching the word to them. Jesus, even in the midst of his soaring popularity, with all the busyness of the crowds, with all the noise going on outside, Jesus kept faithful to his calling and mission. This was the reason Jesus was sent, to proclaim the kingdom of God. And all who gathered around Jesus that day heard his faithful and demanding words. What was Jesus preaching? Well, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. And he was demanding the crowds, repent and believe in the gospel. Mark goes on, verses 3 and 4. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof from above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. So Jesus is popular. People are flocking to him. But Jesus' popularity creates a, a problem here. Perhaps one man, if you really wanted to see Jesus, you could have got into his presence that day. You could have sneaked and twisted through the crowd. But how could a paralyzed man, a man who cannot even walk, see this mighty and merciful Jesus? He can't walk there. How could he be carried through the frenzied crowd either on a, a bed? But the paralytic and his friends, they are undeterred by the crowds. They have heard the reports. This Jesus speaks with authority. He casts out demons. He's even cleansed a leper. Surely this Jesus could heal his broken body. Surely this Jesus could offer him salvation. And so these men, constrained and controlled by faith in Jesus, they make another way. Instead of plowing through the crowd, they climb up the staircase outside the home and they reach the roof. Then they literally dig through the roof and create an opening so that the, the man could be let down into Jesus' presence. Mark here illustrates the powerful working of faith. When someone has faith in Christ, there's this irresistible nature of faith working that draws that person towards Christ. There's a compulsion and obsession with Jesus. No one else will do. There's nothing that can satisfy. Salvation can't be found in any other name. We'll see Mark illustrating the working of faith again and again through his story. We're going to meet the woman with the flow of blood. And there's this irresistible component in her soul that she is not satisfied until she lays hold of Jesus' garments. We'll meet the Syrophoenician woman who humble, humble, humbles herself and begs at the feet of Jesus. We'll meet blind Bartimaeus who cries out on the roadside, Son of David, have mercy on me. Mark is teaching us there's a powerful working in faith. No crowds, no roofs, no social stigma, no amount of pride will keep the believer, the one who has faith, from latching himself or herself to the Savior. Mark pushes us on, though, verse 5. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. When this story begins, it seems like just another healing story. We've heard a lot of these in chapter 1. Just like the leper, just like Simon's mother-in-law. Someone has a need, a physical ailment, perhaps a demon. They come to Jesus and they find their need met. 
But this story is different. And in this morning, Jesus' word should strike us as a bit offbeat. This man is a paralytic. What he needs is healing. His legs don't move. He needs movement restored to his legs. Perhaps his arms can't move. He needs strength restored to his arms. He needs a repaired spinal cord. But Jesus says to this man, Son, your sins are forgiven. We have to ask, what's going on here? Is Jesus ignoring this man's needs? He's a paralytic. Is Jesus missing the point? No. Jesus understands that this man has a deeper need than just to have his paralysis healed, just to have strength restored to his arms or movement to his legs. There's something more fundamental needed. Sickness is due to a a deeper problem. And as we did two weeks ago, we can trace this problem back to covenant unfaithfulness. We we trace this all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, when the Lord said to Adam, if you eat of that tree, you will surely die. We see in this text that there's only one remedy for covenant unfaithfulness, and Jesus works to get at the root of it all, and that's forgiveness. And here Mark clarifies our focus of Jesus' ministry and the blessings of the kingdom of God. It's the forgiveness of sins. Jesus comes in the gospel of, of Mark not as a simple humanitarian. He labors in the gospel not for clean water or for great medicine or for educational reforms. Though those things are good. Rather, Jesus has come to solve the fundamental problem of mankind. He has come to absolve a guilty people of their debts against God. He has come to take away reproach. And Jesus' words in verse 5 help us make sense of what this whole story is about. It makes sense why the story ends with a cross. And Isaiah 53 guides us this morning to make sense of Jesus and what he's all about. Isaiah speaks prophetically about the Lord Jesus, and he says this, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him. We can say, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. So there's the paralytic in front of Jesus, and Jesus says, Son, your sins are forgiven. We have to pause here. What does this mean? What does it mean for your sins to be forgiven? And and more importantly, what would this have meant to Jesus' hearers that day as they heard these words come from Jesus' mouth? We have to be careful this morning how we interpret Jesus' words because we listen to Jesus in a certain context and in a certain time of history where people who live in the 21st century were, were modern people, were Western people. Or even people who who think about ourselves as autonomous individuals. We're people who talk about self-care. People who have Facebook profiles that tell our own stories. Therefore, we might be prone to miss the grand importance of what Jesus is talking about here in verse 5. For the faithful Jew trained in the scriptures, the forgiveness of sins was a, a corporate and eschatological reality. There's a big word there, but we shouldn't be scared away by big words. Big words can be helpful for us this morning because they describe with accuracy. Just think about it. If you go to the doctor, you tell the doctor what's going on with you and he gives you this diagnosis. Well, sir, you've got a tummy ache and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help you. Well, to Owen, my three-year-old, that, that might be comforting if I told him you have a tummy ache. I'm just going to make it better. But as an adult, you go to the doctor and your doctor says, you've got a tummy ache. 
I'm going to find a different doctor. Because I want to know with accuracy what's going on. And if we do this with medicine, if we demand this of our, of our doctors, we should do this with God's words. So what do we mean by eschatology? It's a big word, but it's not very complicated. Your hardest boss is an old, dead Dutch guy, and he helps us out here think about eschatology. He says, eschatology is this. History will have a conclusion. History is not an endless process, but a, a genuine history that ends in a definite goal. There's a climax. There's an ultimate end. And so it has a boundary and limits. So what would the Jews have been thinking that day when they heard Jesus talk about the forgiveness of sins? Well, I think Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34, would have been in the backgrounds of their minds. They'd have been sorting out Jesus' words through this framework. So here, Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31. Jeremiah says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. So what is Jeremiah saying? He's saying the future is coming, the end is coming, the ultimate is coming, eschatology. We can ask Jeremiah, well, what does eschatology consist of? What does the ultimate consist of? We can skim down to verse 34. Jeremiah says, For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So we can go back to the Gospel of Mark and start thinking through this. What happens in verse 5 is not simply an exchange between Jesus and the paralytic. There is an exchange, but there's more happening here. This forgiveness that Jesus offers this man, gives to this man in verse 5, is proof positive that the end of all things is breaking in during Jesus' ministry. To the Jews that day, as they heard Jesus, this wasn't just a sinner's prayer moment. But it was a climactic announcement that the end of the world, the ultimate, is present and is being mediated through Jesus and his ministry in their midst. So brothers and sisters, as we think about our own salvation this morning, we have to say our salvation is eschatological. What does this mean? Well, if you are in Christ this morning, what has happened to you? You are experiencing the blessings of the ultimate, the end. The end has drawn near and is hitting you now in the present. We taste now the salvation that will come to us in full with the return of the Lord Jesus. So Mark keeps pushing us on verses 6 and 7. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus' words, they don't go unnoticed. Because of Jesus' growing fame and his popularity and his controversial acts, some of the trained interpreters of Scripture come to hear this new preacher. What is this man saying? What is this man doing? We need to check him out. And to them, as they heard Jesus speak in that house, his words were confusing and troubling and even damning. We can go back to Jeremiah chapter 31 again. Jeremiah says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. And so first of all, if the scribes were listening, Jesus' words are inherently confusing to them. Jesus is talking about end time things, but to the scribes, Jesus is in the midst of a house with needy people all around him, a paralytic in front of him. This doesn't look like the end of all things. 
even more and even worse. This work of forgiveness was the work of God and the work of God alone. And these men were trained in the scriptures. Surely the proof texts were just pouring and tumbling through their minds as they heard Jesus speak to this man. Son, your sins are forgiven. Psalm 130 probably came into their minds. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness. Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love and according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. What were the scribes thinking? Jesus, this this man in front of them, is not just speaking out of turn. He's not just mixed up about time, that the end is now here in the present. But he he is doing something more than this. He is speaking blasphemy. He's taking the rights and the prerogatives of God for himself. And here the brunt of the problem comes into clear focus. What right, what authority does this Jesus from Nazareth have to do the things that God can only do? Verses 8 through 11. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. As we think about verses 8 and 11, we have to ask, how can you actually prove if someone's sins are forgiven? Even more than this, how can you actually prove if someone has the authority to forgive sins on earth. There's no indicator light that comes on when someone's forgiven. Oh, this person is forgiven. There's no beep that sounds out of someone's soul when their sins are washed away. And and Jesus recognizes this problem in verses 8 through 11. So Jesus begins to reason with the scribes. In the reality of observation, what we can see with our eyes, it is an easier thing to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. Because no one can prove or disprove if that reality has actually happened. However, to come and say to the paralytic, rise, take up your bed, and walk, is a completely different matter. Because with our eyes, we can judge right away whether Jesus is truthful or he's just full of bogus. So what happens? Jesus puts this test upon him himself. And verse 12 records the result of Jesus' reasoning. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never have seen anything like this. So what does this healing prove? What does verse 10 prove? What do verses 8 through 11 prove? Well, Mark narrows our focus down to verse 10. Here's the nugget of this story. Jesus says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So in chapter 1, we we hear of Jesus' authority to cast out demons, unclean spirits, and even to heal people. But But in in chapter 2, in verse 10, we we see this work focused. This Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. Mark is doing his work of vision correction this morning on us. What does it mean for Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of God? What does it mean for the kingdom of God to be at hand and and being mediated through Jesus' ministry? Well, it means this. Jesus is the man 
of Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. He is a man invested with authority and power to do the will of God on earth. Hear what the prophet Daniel says about Jesus. He says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Our vision is getting clearer this morning. Who is Jesus? Well, he's God's son, and even more, he is the man of Daniel chapter 7. He is the man who has been invested with authority and kingly power to establish and advance the kingdom of God upon the earth. The Son does the work of the Father. The Son speaks like the Father. The Son rules with the power of the Father. The Son shares the very authority of the Father. The Son advances the very kingdom of the Father. And we see it clearly in verse 10. He has authority to forgive sins. The scribes hear what Jesus says and they doubt. They say, who can forgive sins but God alone? But Jesus says boldly to the man, son, Your sins are forgiven. And we must be led this morning, we must be led to confess this man, this Jesus of Nazareth, is truly God's son in the fullest of sense. So Mark has been working this morning as a faithful optometrist. As we've moved through the text, he's adjusted our vision. What was blurry now is is coming into focus. That which was incomprehensible is now becoming clear. Who is Jesus? Well, he is the Son of God, and he is on mission to forgive sins, and this will make sense of the cross, why he goes there. What is this kingdom of God all about? Well, we see here that one of the chief blessings of the kingdom of God is that the saving reign of God through Jesus' ministry restores sinners to fellowship with God. So now we need to take what Mark has revealed about Jesus and his kingdom and begin to work it into our souls. So where does this vision lead us? Where does this clear focus take us? Well, Mark has two things for us this morning, two applications. First application, the necessity of Christ. Jesus says in verse 10, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Jesus here is preaching boldly the necessity of himself for every sinner. We can ask ourselves this morning, what does it mean to be a citizen of the kingdom of God? What does it mean to be a person who who tastes the saving reign of God? Or even more plainly, what does it mean to be a Christian? Well, Mark pushes us this morning from verse 10. We can say, it means to be a person who is needy of Christ Jesus. This is a clear fact revealed throughout the pages of the New Testament. There's forgiveness, and forgiveness only in Christ Jesus. We read together 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5-6, through 6, and, and Paul reminds us here of the gospel. He says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. So we can be honest with ourselves this morning. This is fairly basic level Christianity. 
the stuff we teach our children, and if you grew up in the church going to Sunday school, this is something you, you likely know. But the great question is this. Well, it's easy to understand, easy to teach our children. Do we live by this simple truth every day? Has this truth of verse 10, that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, ingrained itself into the daily warp and woof of our lives and our, our rituals? So we can ask ourselves another set of questions this morning. How are we to live as members of the kingdom of God? How do we live as Christians? How are we to live as someone who is experiencing the end time blessings of God? Eschatology has come bearing down upon us. What does it look like? Well, Robert Murray McShane, an old dead Scottish pastor, writes, and he really helps us here, make sense of what it means to be a citizen of of the kingdom. He says, I ought to go to Christ for the forgiveness of each sin. In washing my body, I go over every spot and I wash it out. Should I be less careful in washing my soul? I must never think a sin too small or insignificant to need immediate application to the blood of Christ. Goes on to say, the weight of my sins should act like a clock. The heavier it is, it makes me go faster. McShane is helpful. He's pushing Jesus' words right down into our hearts. The Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And we can reason this morning. We need to know this. It is not simply enough to know your sins or to be able to number all of your sins because this will not make you right before God the Father. It is not simply enough to confess your sins or even to ruminate upon your sins. These things will not make God satisfied with you. It is not even enough to mourn over your sin and beat yourself up for your sins or excoriate yourself for your sins. This will not do it for God, the just judge. There's only one God-ordained resource for the sinner in this life. There's only one man who has the authority on earth to forgive sins, and it is the Lord Jesus Christ and the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Jesus is the only one who bears this authority. Jesus is the only one competent to cancel out our record of wrong. Jesus is the only one fit for this great work. He has given his life as a ransom for many, as Paul tells us. And even more so, Jesus is the only person who is willing to commune with sinners like us. For every sin, whether it's an act of commission when we break God's law or an act of omission when we fail to keep God's law, we must make our way to our merciful and faithful Savior. We must cast our sins upon His back. We must rely on His merits. Shane is such a faithful counselor for us this morning. He says, in washing my body, I go over every spot and wash it out. Should I be less careful in washing my own soul? So I want to ask you this morning, what do you do with your sin? What are you doing with your sin? Where do you go as a mother or father after you've been impatient with your children? They've been ragging on you all day. And you finally blow up. Husbands and wives. Where do you, where do you go when you speak a sharp word to your, your spouse? Children, where do you go when you disobey? You neglect the authority of your, your parents. 
Where do you go when you've neglected communion with God, when you haven't read God's word in days and you haven't uttered a single prayer? Where do you go? What do you do with these things? Where do you go after you've been at work? Your boss has been riding on you and you're dealing with customers that are just irritating you and resentment rises up within your soul. What do you do with that anger? Well, the scriptures encourage us this morning. There's one thing we must do. We must go to Christ, the one who has authority on earth to forgive sins. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 counsels us this morning. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. The good news of the gospel this morning is, is so precious. For every sin, we have immediate and free access to the one who has authority on earth to forgive sins. So as a people who share in the reign of God, who's been ushered into this great kingdom through Jesus, as a people who share in the end-time blessings of God, who are we to be? Well, may we be a people who make our way faithfully to our worthy Savior every day and for every sin, relying upon His merits and His blood. So what does it mean to share in the kingdom of God? What does it mean to be a Christian this morning, a follower of Christ? Well, it means to be needy of Jesus. And Mark has a second thing for us, the necessity of faith. What does it mean to share in the kingdom of God this morning? It means to be a person of faith. We can go back to the story that Mark brings before us. Many were gathered around Jesus that day at Capernaum. Just think about the scene. The house is just bursting. Mark says, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And all who were gathered that day, that frenzy crowd, they all heard the authoritative authoritative preaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. The, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus' powerful words, his controversial actions created much excitement that day. Mark says they were they were all amazed. Even the religious scholars were there on the scene, carefully weighing and scrutinizing everything Jesus did, everything Jesus said. So we can say this morning, Jesus' words, Jesus' actions were clearly evident to the multitude. But from our text this morning, only a small number profited from the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. It wasn't the frenzied and excited crowd. It wasn't the knowledgeable scribes who knew the scriptures backwards and forwards. But one helpless man, a paralytic, who could even carry himself to Jesus and his four faithful friends. And as we look at the scene that Mark paints before us, we have to ask, what made the ministry of Jesus profitable to this man and his friends and not profitable to the rest? Mark guides us. He points us right at the issue. Verse 5. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. We have to understand this this morning. All the end time promises of God. We've been talking about eschatology, the future coming into the present. We've been talking about the benefits of Christ, the forgiveness of sins. All of these good things are only received through faith. The scribes questioned that day. They heard the words of Jesus. They saw what he could do, but they did not believe, and so they did not benefit from this Jesus. The crowds were amazed. They glorified God. They were excited about what was going on. 
but their hearts were not united in faith to this Jesus. So they had no lasting benefit of this Savior. But the paralytic and his friends, they came needy in faith. And this man greatly benefited from Jesus forever. Son, your sins are forgiven. And I ask you this morning, do you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Faith will not let you simply question and scrutinize the words of Jesus like the scribes. Faith will not let you simply be amazed and excited about Jesus and what he can do. Rather, faith will irresistibly draw you near and bring you into direct communion with the Savior, Jesus Christ himself. Just think about this story. Faith, real saving faith, drove these four men to action. In faith, they could not be held apart from this Savior. No crowd, no house, no roof could keep them from Jesus. Faith led them up the staircase. Faith led them onto the roof. Faith left dirt on their hands and sweat upon their brows. And in faith, they found Jesus and all his benefits. So I ask you, do you have faith? What are your hands full of this morning? Do you have Jesus Christ in them? Saving faith is not academic knowledge, nor is it just excitement. But saving faith is laying hold of Jesus and having communion with the Savior. And Jesus desires something of you this morning. He desires faith. In fact, he commands faith of you this morning. He says, in light of the kingdom of God, in light of the future coming into the present, he says, repent and believe in the gospel. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we do rejoice in the Lord Jesus. There is no one like him. He is a sweet Savior. He is a gracious Savior. He is a powerful Savior. He has authority on earth to forgive sins. And so we worship you this morning. Oh, Father, we ask, make us needy of Christ. Give us faith so that we might lay hold of him and have direct communion with this Savior. Oh, work this in our hearts, we pray. Amen.